this is going to be the headquarters uh, where thousands are going to be hired, but the community who lives here is not going to work there. And they're not going to benefit from what's happening here. As we said, like these are mostly sector, you know, uh, service sector workers, and they are the ones who's going to be displaced by Amazon workers coming. You're listening to Subvert, a podcast from Corporate Accountability. We're a 40-plus-year-old organization powered by people. We wage strategic campaigns to stop corporate abuse against human rights and our planet. I'm Lena Greenberg. I use they-them pronouns, and I'm our press officer. I'm Mikel Lejean, and I use he-him pronouns, and I'm our associate campaign director. Today, we're talking to three people advocating for the safety and stability of a deeply rooted immigrant community in Alexandria, Virginia. These folks are organizing to protect the tenants of Southern Towers, an affordable housing complex located just six miles away from Amazon's proposed HQ2. Southern Towers is largely comprised of working class folks, many of whom are African immigrants and service workers. Under any circumstances, these folks face barriers to thriving in a country that is not built to support them. But this is not just any year. Not only did many tenants lose jobs at the beginning of the pandemic, but Southern Towers also got bought by a massive real estate corporation in August called CIM Group. Since then, with fading support for people at the intersection of challenges posed by the pandemic and beyond, the tenants of Southern Towers have had to organize for their right to stay in their homes and the ability to preserve a community that has thrived against so many odds. The first voice you heard was Bert Bayou. He's a chapter director for African Communities Together, based in the Washington, D.C. area. He leads the Southern Towers organizing campaign. We also spoke with Amaha Kasa, he, him pronouns, the founder and executive director of African Communities Together. I grew up uh, partly in Northern Virginia and, you know, I lived down the street from Southern Towers. I had cousins who lived there and was there many times growing up. And it's not just a high density, you know, apartment complex. It's really a, uh, a village in a way. Uh, that is kind of a center of the community in the area. And that's kind of, that's what's under threat right now. The threat Amaha is referring to is of evictions. According to a report produced by the tenants, CIM Group, the new owner of Southern Towers, is the largest single source of eviction filings in the city of Alexandria. Also joining us for the conversation was Chris Boner, he, him pronouns. Chris is a research consultant supporting the organizing effort at Southern Towers. He's been working on housing issues in the D.C. area for the last two decades. It's one of the largest sources of affordable housing for service workers in this region. The, the median household income in Alexandria is 100000 It's about 60000 at Southern Towers. So it's a place where... People have lived a long time. The data shows that, and it's because it is a place that people can afford. And although many are working more than one job, it is a vital source of the affordable housing in the region. Bert helps set the scene for us at Southern Towers. There are a lot of uh, Ethiopians and other Africans like Sudanese and uh, Ghanaians in this region, but Southern Towers have been home for a lot of Ethiopians, you know, I would say since about the 80s. Um, as the new immigrants come, this is this is home for them. Like, this is where, I mean, everyone and a lot of people that I know, whenever they came to this country, have lived in this building for a longer or shorter time. It's known in the community as, uh, 
you know, as our home. You know, we've done a lot of surveys and, you know, before I worked for African Communities Together, I worked for a labor union called Unite Here Local 23, which is a hospitality workers union. And our members who are, you know, also, uh, uh, especially at the airport and uh, in the parking lots and other cafeterias are from Ethiopia. And I've been to this building so many times, you know, to talk to workers, to, to visit them in the houses, or to sometimes just to even sit in the lobby to meet them as they walk in or out. So from our surveys, I would say the residents here are about maybe 60%, if not more, of uh, African immigrants. And it's always been like this for many, many years. Can you talk about how African Communities Together started organizing with Southern Towers tenants? We've been doing uh, civic engagement work here. You know, we've done voter registration. And then last year, uh, we had a campaign to give awareness on the census to the community in Northern Virginia community. We built a lot of connections with the community while we were doing that. And then about March, or mid-March, as we were like continuing to campaign for people to register for census, we start to get calls from the community saying, look, you know, our landlords are pushing us to pay rent. We all are laid off from our jobs. And, you know, this community here are mostly service workers and they're the first ones to be laid off when the pandemic happened. And as uh, Chris uh, mentioned earlier, they do multiple jobs, but those multiple jobs are also service jobs. So they are laid off from two jobs, or if they're driving Uber or Lyft as a third income, that also went away. So this, this, you know, tenants were just suddenly sitting at home with their kids uh, with no jobs and unemployment being just so been so difficult. Uh, you know, we were pivoting our operations from census awareness to assisting tenants with filling out unemployment forms in their own languages and, you know, in Arabic and in, uh, in Amharic, which is the main language for Ethiopians. And then while we were doing that, like the, the landlord started sending emails or putting letters under their doors saying, we know it's a pandemic, we know like you could, you're probably laid off, but prioritize paying your rent. Like prioritize having shelter, like shelter is important for you. So the tenants were really upset about it. Of course, like we lost all our jobs and we're trying to figure out how we get unemployment. And a lot of them were saying like, you know, we worried about basic things like uh, food and other basic necessities. But now this landlord is like threatening us with evictions and we we saw the letters and we it was putting the tenants in a lot of pressure so we said we gotta start organizing the tenants and you know as a union organizer before i know some union leaders in who live also who also live here so one of them specifically his name is sami borma he's from sudan and we started talking and he said i want to start a rent cancellation campaign he said like we want this landlord to stop pushing people to pay rent, and instead they should be assisting them. So that's how we started organizing, and it's quickly caught on. Uh, we did our first action on the first due date of rent after the pandemic, which was uh, April 20. The only thing that the landlord 
did back then to assist tenants was we'll push the due date, which is the fifth of the month, which, by the way, would charge late fees and everything, which is 10% after the fifth of the month. So we did a rally within the building. It was pandemic, so we couldn't do it in person. So we did our first car caravan actions. So we used the cars uh, for the protest. We had signs and other props to show, you know, that we put on the cars and tenants moved around the building and started protesting that we had over 100 uh, cars participating in this action. It was very powerful. It was the beginning of the pandemic, but that's how it started. So mid-March, that's when everyone started to stay home. And immediately after that, like within maybe a week when rent was due on April 1st, people started receiving letters from the landlord. It was not, it's not the same landlord that we have now called Bell Partners, which owned the building for many years before that. But that's when immediately after the pandemic started, tenants started receiving these letters from the landlord. So what happened is it did not stop and it was like continuing and it's, it's continuing to, uh, stress the, uh, the tenants and like it's sometimes heartbreaking because at that moment on everyone's mind was the fear of the pandemic, the fear of COVID, like catching COVID, getting sick or dying. And there were a lot of tenants who told me, look, I wish like, you know, those jobs out there, like I could go out and work and pay this rent than being put in this stress by the landlord. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about COVID. I'm just worried about this landlord putting me out and evicting me. And that campaign started and, you know, it, we, had to, we had to pivot on a lot of things. Like we could not meet people in person. So we used in our database to send out forms to people to fill out like what kind of needs they have. And most of them came back saying, we, we need rent relief. We need rent relief. Like uh, we, we shouldn't be bothered. We shouldn't be stressed out about rent right now. And of course, groceries and of course, like other needs that people had. So as we continue to protest, you know, one, one campaign that we started is for, for the, the government, you know, mostly the, the state, to provide assistance for rent payments. So one of the things that the, the, the state put was some kind of eviction moratorium and rental assistance. So as we were pushing through that, uh, there were some politicians who would not commit, who did not commit to that. Uh, like uh, state senators and delegates, and they were not in their offices. So one of the actions that we have done is um, to go to the state senators' houses and with coffee, you know, the Ethiopian coffee ceremony with the whole uh, snacks and everything ready outside of the senators' houses and knocking their doors and asking them to come out so you can sit down and have coffee and talk to us about you know, what we are going through. And uh, we were doing that campaign, uh, you know, over the summer. And um, as soon as, you know, the state opened the court sometime in June, there was a flood of evictions that came from this apartment building and the numbers were really high. I mean, Chris would go into the numbers later on, but the amount of evictions that were coming out of these buildings was, you know, a record uh, and one of the highest in the city probably the, the most uh, the most evictions filed from this building than any other places. And so this was really a, a big problem for tenants and they testified 
they lobbied senators, uh, you know, outside of their houses. And finally, the state passed eviction moratorium, but they did not stop the eviction courts. So the people continued to go to court. And this is a scary thing for a lot of them because they've never been to a court. They've never been in trouble and they, they can't afford lawyers. So they're just going into a court without really knowing what's going to happen. And we had to, you know, we had to organize uh, a lot of events and use the organizers to to assist tenants to fill out eviction moratorium forms and what, you know, what they can expect when they go to the court and even to show up to court because a lot of people, when they see, they, they don't know, like, the, the steps. Like, when when a landlord first files the writs, like, it's a threat, like, pay in five days or leave. That's the letter that they receive, right? So for any person that's reading that letter, it's saying if I don't pay in five days, I have to leave. So we have to we have to talk to tenants and say no, you know, you can you, you don't have to leave in five days. You have to go to court and then you know you continue to live here. So that's how we started assisting tenants from being evicted. Of course, there were some tenants who live who left by themselves when they get these letters because they were scared, uh, but. We managed to keep most tenants in their homes for a while, and later on, this organizing and campaign led to the state releasing uh, rental assistance money in millions of dollars, which uh, tenants then can apply and uh, pay uh, the amount of rent that they have accrued. The building, the company continues to file evictions. Um, um, we just found out that they're going to file more evictions tomorrow, so... Um, that's what we're facing here. Wow, Mikkel, that was a lot. This story isn't like a lot of the stories we usually tell on Subvert, but this feels so close and so important. What's on your mind, having just learned what we did about Southern Towers? I'm, I'm someone who immigrated to this country, I understand a little bit of the reasoning why like someone from the Caribbean at least would want to move to the US. And I also have this perspective of like what you're looking for as an immigrant. You're trying to find a home. You're trying to minimize harm. And as someone who has worked on climate justice issues and other housing justice issues, justice for me is really at its root about the ability for people to find home and thrive. And I was reminded of that from a climate justice organizer in Southwest US, Lyrica Maldonado, who works at Uplift Climate. And she was mentioning this in her like reflection of what she thinks climate justice is. As someone who's immigrated from Central America, has family that's indigenous to this part of the world, and how her indigeneity is neglected in one case <laughs> to make root for someone else to claim this as their home. Um, and so, yeah, that that has been running through my mind a lot. Yeah, for sure. I I am not myself an immigrant, but my my ancestors came to the U.S., you know, fleeing persecution and all ended up in the same neighborhood because you know, they all wanted to be with their people. So I feel like that, even though it's a little bit less direct for me, temporally still feels very familiar. And I I grew up in a big apartment building and 
you know, I grew up in the middle of New York City, but it was the apartment building that was my community. And and I think Omaha referred to Southern Towers as as kind of its own village. That really struck me. Like, oh, I I know that feeling. And, you know, as my neighborhood gentrified, people moved out and so did my family. And now it's gone. So the the kind of threat that is posed to Southern Towers feels really close to me. And and just to speak to the climate piece, I have long thought about the climate crisis as a crisis of home, both on a planetary scale and in terms of where people are and where it will be viable for people to be and how many, you know, thousands, millions, probably billions of people will have to move um, in response to the changing climate. So very, very much resonating with the idea that finding finding home is central to many kinds of justice. Um, and I think it's, you know, it's really admirable what kind of stronghold this community is and how the conditions for thriving have been created by these folks in the face of all of that. And then for this corporation to come in and threaten all of that is just horrifying to me. Like there's corporations often present themselves as solutions to problems and often present themselves as solutions to problems they caused. And what really struck me about this situation is that there actually wasn't a problem here to be solved by a developer, to be solved by a landlord. Like there was just no reason for this to happen. In August 2020, Southern Towers was sold for $506 million to a company called CIM Group. It was one of, if not the largest apartment transaction in the country. CIM Group is a private real estate firm. They have about 28 billion assets under their control. They have received significant investments from public pension funds around the country, particularly California public pension funds. They like to focus their real estate investing in urban areas that they call qualified communities, which are communities that are, uh, rents are going up, growth is is up, and uh, they obviously are seeking to uh, get the highest return they can get for their, for their investment and for, on behalf of their investors. They describe themselves as a uh, commu- community-focused real estate firm, and they have a lot of um, a lot of verbiage about their commitment to corporate responsibility. So the big question was, why? Why would a company buy for half a billion dollars an apartment building in the middle of a pandemic? And I think that's what we've been figuring out together is, is who this company is, what are their objectives, and what are the implications for this really unique community. What we're seeing happening in the whole DMV area, but you know, particularly in Northern Virginia, um, uh, in close proximity to, to Amazon's HQ2, um, is really before a single you know kind of Amazon employee has been hired. Right, this is a gold rush um, that's happening around real estate in the region. 
Um, people are buying up property on 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 speculation. People are um, and developers are looking to cash in by building new developments that are targeted at the kind of you know high earners who are going to be most of the uh, the HQ two employees. That is the pressure that people are experiencing now in a region that was already housing burdened. You know where people are already spending a really high percentage of their income on their rent, and where we have to be frank, especially especially in the Northern Virginia side of, of, you know, the river, weak affordable housing uh, laws and mandates and supply. So, you know, you're kind of dropping a match into, you know, into, into a tinderbox. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are looking to cash in and the communities where um, people are seen as vulnerable because they're, you know, because they're black, they're immigrants, they're, they don't speak English well, they're not politically, you know, well organized or um, influential are going to be the easiest ones to displace. So we really see this as kind of the first big battle uh, in the war over, you know, whether the, you know, Northern Virginia's communities of color and uh, immigrant communities are going to be able to have a right to stay. Amazon is certainly, you know, their experience in Seattle is widely known of what they did to the housing market for housing affordability. I think they've, in this case, they've announced a lot of initiatives. The question is, are they appropriate to the scale? And I think what a lot of the housing experts that I consulted for the report are concerned about is that there's a lot of emphasis, well, we're going to build new housing or we're going to, this thousand units going up and 10% are going to be designated for affordable. You know, that's a good policy, but the problem is all this existing affordable housing stock, like Southern Towers, there's other, not as big, but all around the region that these things are being bought and sold as commodities. So just a little bit more on Amazon, because this is going to be the headquarters uh, where thousands are going to be hired, but the community who lives here is not going to work there. They're not going to benefit from what's happening here. As we said, like these are mostly sector, you know, uh, service sector workers, and they are the ones who's going to be displaced by Amazon workers coming. I mean, Amazon uh, headquarters workers coming here. So the other problem is also, you know, DMV area, the Washington DC area is like a big region, but most of the work that these tenants work, like airports um, and you know uh, other uh, other service jobs, are near Washington DC. So you know, commute is also important. A lot of uh, union members that we have who work at the airport, they start working at 4 a.m. in the morning, right? Like that's when they report to work. And, you know, I can tell you that a lot of them who don't drive can rely on just showing up downstairs from Southern Towers and getting a ride work with their coworkers, right? Like it's close enough, that's where people live. So if these workers, if these tenants are evicted from here, there is no other city or you know nearby location where they can they can relocate like there are places which are you know affordable but like like one hour away um from the dmv area like where the jobs are so you know uh chris has put it in his rec in his report and also you can also look at it at thousand towers they're 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 marketing it uh 
for people who work for who's going to work for uh, Amazon. But if you really come and look at the playgrounds and uh, you know the, the residents here, they don't they don't look anything like what you see in, uh, in the Southern Towers website, right? Like they're trying to change the demography of this area and this building. And if you ask me where this community would go, I really don't know. Yeah, and just to connect uh, the dots on a couple of things, um, this company, CIM, which is one of the biggest um, for-profit landlords in the country, has shown that they are not interested in helping Southern Towers tenants stay in place. And they've shown that by um, continuing to, to drag people into court during the eviction moratorium. They've shown that by continuing to charge late fees during a pandemic and to pile on the late fees on top of back rent that, uh, you know, for people who, who were displaced, were put out of work and um, have, have few, if any, resources. And they've shown that also by being um, disinterested, if not outright resistant, to take advantage of the city and state funds that are available that landlords can apply to for tenant relief, right? They've sort of told the tenants, well, yeah, you're on your own as opposed to partnering with the tenants to try to get, you know, try to uh, secure that relief. Um, And we think that the reason for that is pretty clear. Um, This is down the street from Amazon HQ2, right? They, this company CIM has secured hundreds of millions more than they needed to purchase Southern Towers. You know, we think it's pretty clear that what they intend to do is upgrade these facilities and rent them to new, more affluent um, Amazon HQ2 uh, employees. And they're, so they're not interested in keeping these low-income, black and brown, uh, you know, African immigrants, allowing them to hold on to this community where some have been for decades. One of the kind of startling things of following the money on this transaction is that Freddie Mac, which is a basically government-owned financial institution that facilitates single family purchases, but also finances transactions like this. Freddie Mac, which is owned by taxpayers because they were bailed out in 2008, is financing this transaction. And CIM called it in one of their presentations, extremely favorable financing. It's taxpayer subsidized financing for this transaction. But Freddie Mac has imposed virtually no conditions on the eviction practices, and certainly not on the longer term affordable housing. So you got to ask, what is the role here? You know, government is stepping in and helping firms like CIM, but you don't see the same sort of level of commitment to the residents and the community. So the tenants have gone to Freddie Mac to sort of say, you can't finance this kind of thing without putting conditions on it. Because that's their role. That's their mission is to promote affordable housing, but is the opposite is happening. And at the same time, also CIM Group is a company that they got a paycheck protection program loan. They're a $28 billion institution. It's supposed to be for small businesses. And meanwhile, these meanwhile, they're dragging people into court while claiming to their pension fund investors that they're focused on the community and they're investing. What we've all tried to do is lay bare what's really going on here. Or do you want to talk about some of the ways that they're pushing people out, and why and how that led you know folks to 
um, withhold rent and how we were how we were sort of organizing around that? Yes. Yeah, so as I said earlier, as they were pushing tenants to pay whatever money they have into rent, um, at the same time, they were not even maintaining the buildings, right? Like each floor has like a trash chute and they, on some, on, on some of these levels, they closed the trash chutes and like people were like leaving their trash outside. So the whole way was like, you know, really smelling bad. This is a pandemic where all the kids are staying home, all the parents are, everyone is home. And people had to go out and, you know, buy groceries and go about like their, their daily lives. And the building was not cleaning the, the common areas. There was no rule like how many people that they, you know, they go into the elevators, elevators were not working. And then they started shutting down the water. This is like a, a typical a landlord trying to push tenants out. There were like, you know, two or days or three days sometimes where people does not have water, running water in their apartment buildings. We actually have done some work around this. Our water campaign alongside allies from across the country has been pushing for a moratorium on water and utility shutoffs during the pandemic, because how can it be okay to shut people's water off when we're telling everyone to wash their hands? The tenants were really upset about this whole thing. And, you know, this is how it started saying, you know what, I'm not, even if I have savings, my savings is for food and I'm not going to go and borrow money from my friends or family to pay rent. That's not what I want to do right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And what really upset them is also the way management treated tenants. I mean, this relationship, especially CIM, the relationship between the office management and the tenants is not like your typical uh, you know, apartment building and a customer relationship. It is filled with so much disrespect and neglect and basically acting like, uh, like every time a tenant walks into the office, they were made feel like they're bothering them or like, uh, I can't talk to you now. Like, go away, send me an email. Like most these tenants don't speak English or even if they speak English, it's so hard for them to find a computer to send email and like explain what, what they want to do. They will always feel like they're pushed away and disrespected. That's that's other thing also that really pissed off these tenants because as we said earlier, almost all these tenants have been living here for many years and they pay their rent on time. Uh, even if they have to do two or three jobs, like, you know, they spend uh, their money to pay rent. Uh, like they felt like when this thing happened, like they thought the landlord was going to be considerate. Like in look at their payment history, look at their, you know, uh, looking at like how good residents they were, they'll be getting some kind of relief or some kind of assistance or some compassion, right? But instead what they faced is complete threat and uh you know evictions and um being dragged to court and like but the most important thing that really angered a lot of tenants is also that the company is not willing to talk to them so those are the things which push tenants to to organize and they found each other they looked for each other they were talking in the parking lots in the parks and saying i'm in this situation you're in the same situation come join us. So that's how this grew and became a movement, really. 
because when we when we have a lot of legislature meetings and hearings, thousand towers tenants were always the ones who always showed out to speak to testify about what's happening. And when we won the eviction moratoriums and similar other measures by the state, these tenants were the voice of the tenants in the city to speak up and say what they're going through, what they're facing and what, what they need. Yeah. And to speak to your question of, you know, what can people who are not Southern Towers tenants uh, do to support the Southern Towers tenants fight? Unfortunately, this this company um, isn't necessarily going to listen to public input. Right. Um, Their tenants have power as an organized group. But really what what we need to do is to put pressure on particularly the government agencies that are enabling this corporate landlord. So we need to put pressure on the city of Alexandria to say, listen, if you're going to let these folks continue to build or do massive development projects in the city, you should be asking hard questions um, about what kind of neighbor and what kind of landlord they are. You know, do your job to protect the supply of affordable housing that we already have in Alexandria. Um, You know, we need to be asking hard questions of Freddie Mac and why they are investing in and underwriting uh, real estate development that claims to be in communities, uh, you know, in diverse communities and say, well, what are you doing in those diverse communities? Are you helping people stay or are you pushing them out? Um, And so, you know, we need to be asking that question of Freddie Mac, our members of Congress, the oversight committees in Congress need to be asking those questions of Freddie Mac about how they're spending taxpayer funds um, that they're investing in in, in, uh, real estate development. And we need to be advocating for stronger renter provisions. I think the appropriate amount of a rent late fee that we should be charging in a massive pandemic, you know, where a huge percentage of the workforce has been laid off through no uh, fault of their own, I think the appropriate level of late fee for the, in that situation should be zero. Um, and that's how much they should be collecting from tenants is zero. Um, You know, we need to also keep pushing for, you know, big visionary demands like, you know, broad rent cancellation, you know, and broad tenant relief and putting tenants on the same playing field as homeowners where we've had where we've we have seen, you know, Congress move on on mortgage relief. So we need to say, look, we need you to do your jobs um, and to help us stay in our homes and stay in our communities. I would just add one addition as well as the funds that are financing this are public pension funds. They're state workers, they're healthcare workers. So part of what we're asking is that those pension funds take a look um, because I think they're being told one thing by CIM that they're community focused and there's, you know, that this is all win-win for everybody, but they have to understand that there's a cost to this as well. And I think a lot of the members of these pension funds, if they understood, and we name them in, a, in our report, at least who are invested with CIM, we don't know if they're in this specific project, but I think a lot of these public employees saw what was going on, they would not be happy. They wouldn't think this is an appropriate use. They don't want to make the retirement by displacing people who lived in, 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 in Southern Towers for generations. And it's true, Southern Towers tenants have already experienced displacement um, a lot of times from their country of birth. 
And whether it's like, you know, sort of my family that came here, you know, way back in, in the 70s, uh, you know, as asylum seekers, or the people who came, who came through the 80s and 90s through the diversity visa program, you know, were able to emigrate because they had a, you know, family member uh, who came before them. We've had generations of people building a community and building a sense of place in this uh, place in Southern Towers. And that's what's under threat right now. Um, is that people who've been displaced at least once, you know, sometimes several times in their lives are, are going to be displaced again. And so, you know, we're putting pressure on the city, the state, uh, the federal government. You know, we think it's, you know, shocking the degree to which policymakers have favored homeowners versus renters in doing um, relief. But we're also saying, you know, CIM, you have a part to play here too. You're one of the um, the wealthiest, most deep-pocketed landlords in the country. And the fact that you are doing so much to, with our taxpayer funds, our taxpayer investments, to facilitate the displacement of this community while mouthing these platitudes about your commitment to diversity and equity is really a shame and a disgrace. There's a big crisis waiting to happen here. And that's what we want to get ahead and start exposed. And like, so that politicians and uh, corporate corporations like CIM um, can do the right thing by these tenants, by this community. This was a heavy, heavy episode, but there's so much. I think there's so much power too right here. Like I love the unity. I love the example of of people coming together and preserving what they've built. And it's if it's not a lesson for like every single movement <laughs> like that exists, like I don't know what would be a a, a better example. So, um yeah, it's it's really incredible. Yeah, and it and it makes me think of the the idea of permanently organized communities that these folks are in what seems from from what we heard to be somewhat of a permanently organized community. Like these African communities together was already doing outreach in these buildings for the census. And then in response to a new threat, a new challenge, that organizing pivoted, which, which suggests to me that this is a community that's organized to organize in the face of whatever comes up instead of just you know, kind of single issue, like, let's do this one thing and, and move on. These people are, are looking out for each other in a way that's really phenomenal to see. Thanks for listening to Subvert. For information on how to support the Southern Towers tenants, you can go to their website, ACT, the number four, southerntowers.org. There's also a link to their website and social media toolkit on our website, corporateaccountability.org slash subvert. This episode was co-hosted by me and Lena Greenberg. Lena also wrote the show. Eric Johnson and I co-produced and edited the show. Eric mixed the show and also wrote our music. And thanks so much to our guests, Amaha Casa, Bert Bayou, and Chris Boner. Really appreciate you all chatting with us. 